This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. ER Vet is brought to you by Heroes for Healthy Pets. We're passionate about your pet's health. ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about canine parvovirus. So if you have a puppy, you want to tune in. We'll be right back after these messages. You know that feeling when you go to clean the litter box and it's a complete disaster? Yeah, we've got you covered. Introducing World's Best Cat Litter Zero Mess, the advanced litter that gives you two times better clumping and more odor control with less litter. Zero Mess combines the concentrated power of corn with super-absorbent plant fibers. Translation, scoop once and you're done. Find it at a pet store near you and save $2. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Pet Life Radio, and you're on with ER Vet. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Garrett Pachtinger. Dr. Pachtinger, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Pachtinger is an emergency critical care veterinary specialist at the Veterinary Specialty and Emergency Center, which is a Blue Pearl Veterinary Partner Hospital, and that's located in Levittown, which is right outside of the Philadelphia area. And Dr. Pachtinger, why don't you introduce yourself on a little bit of background, where you trained, and do you end up seeing a lot of canine parvovirus either during your residency or where you practice now? Happy to. And again, thanks for having me on the on the show today. So I am, as Justine said, I am a veterinarian. I did my veterinary training at the University of Pennsylvania. So after my undergraduate degree, I went to four years of veterinary school, followed by an internship fellowship and then a residency to become board certified in emergency and critical care. And so I've been practicing medicine in the greater Philadelphia area now since about 2005. And parvovirus, which I'm excited to talk about today, is actually quite a common disease process we see in the greater Philadelphia area. And let me known, this is not just a Philadelphia problem. This is really uh, national all over. And so a very, very common topic as we get into our spring season. I know it's hard for some of us out there because there's still snow on the ground and it's cold out. But this is the time when we really need to be very vigilant about worrying, uh, treating, and hopefully preventing parvovirus. So canine parvovirus, which is often called CPV, is actually really interesting. And, you know, it was actually discovered in the late 60s, early 70s. And the frustrating thing as a veterinarian is that there is a vaccine that is super protective. It's almost 99% effective. But unfortunately, we're still seeing a lot of canine parvovirus. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about canine parvovirus and the transmission. And then we'll talk to Dr. Garrett Pachtinger about the clinical signs, how we diagnose it and how we treat it. When it comes to canine parvovirus, you do have to be aware if you have a puppy or an immunosuppressed dog 
Or if you do a lot of foster or you do a lot of rescue work, you have to pay attention to today's ER vet show. And the main reason why is because parvovirus is so infectious. It typically affects young dogs that are usually, again, under-vaccinated, unvaccinated, or immunosuppressed. I did want to talk a little bit about canine parvovirus. It is a virus. It's what we call a non-envelope DNA virus. And it's the type of virus that really prefers to infect rapidly dividing cells. What are rapidly dividing cells in your body? Well, typically your bone marrow, your gastrointestinal tract, and even your heart muscle, what we call the myocardium. Important to know that most dogs are protected for it when they get vaccinated. This is the P in the DHPP vaccine. The key thing to remember is canine parvovirus can be life-threatening, and it's because they end up dying of severe dehydration. So we'll talk about transmission, but Dr. Pachtinger, can you tell me some of the most common clinical signs that owners should be aware of when they see a dog that's presenting? Maybe it's an under-vaccinated puppy, or they just got the dog, they just rescued the dog. What signs should owners look for. Absolutely happy to. And so remembering what you just said, that this virus attacks rapidly dividing cells. Some of the most rapidly dividing cells in the body are the cells that line the stomach and the intestines. So if your stomach or intestinal cells are affected, they are irritated, they are inflamed, some of the most common signs that we see are loss of appetite, vomiting, and diarrhea. So if you have any dog that is clearly under one year of age and starts presenting with these signs, that is a test that your veterinarian will likely talk to you about because it's very important that we know that is what's going on or that is what's not going on in understanding how to best treat them. So again, signs of not eating, not moving, acting really lethargic, drooling a lot, like they're nauseous, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, or straining to defecate. When in doubt, if you see any of these signs in a puppy, you want to get to a vet right away. Now, based on the fact that we both practice in Philadelphia and a lot of inner cities, what are some of the more common breeds that may be at increased risk or that you see more frequently with parvovirus? That's a great question. And so there's some thought out there that certain breeds are a little bit more at risk for getting this and potentially even a little bit more at risk as they're a little bit older in age. And so you commented, as did I, that this is typically seen in dogs less than one year of age. But pit bulls are one breed. Dobermans and Rottweilers are three different breeds that tend to be maybe a little bit more predisposed, a little bit more sensitive to this virus. And I'm sure we all have those anecdotal stories, the stories that don't fit into the textbook classic mold. But I've absolutely seen dogs of those breed, the Pitbull breed, the Rottweiler breed, and the Doberman breed that not only get parvovirus, that can even get parvovirus at a slightly older age, two, three, even a four-year-old dog. And that's really interesting interesting because you would expect a dog by two, three, or four years of age, even if they've never been vaccinated for this virus, there's some natural exposure. This virus is fairly ubiquitous. So if you go to your dog park, the kennels, maybe even somebody else's backyard, there's a chance that you may have that virus in the grass, in the soil there. So a dog by little by little may have a little bit of natural exposure that builds up their antibody, that builds up their immune system, which is why it's so uncommon for a dog that is older in age, even if they're not fully or vaccinated at all to get this virus, to get this disease. And so that's why it's often a dog disease less than one year of age. But that Rottweiler, Pitbull, and Doberman breed tends to be a little bit more predisposed. 
I will add, I've definitely seen it in a lot of mixed breed dogs, Labradors, German Shepherds, even Alaskan sled dogs are all thought to be at increased risk. And one of the reasons why we are talking about this today on ER Vet is because unfortunately, parvovirus can be really expensive to treat. And we'll talk about prevention and how we can prevent it at the end of today's show. But really important that owners know It is so important to realize that your dog has to be protected for this potentially life-threatening disease. The way that puppies die from this is because they get so dehydrated from the vomiting and diarrhea. And so I tell people, it's like you getting cholera nowadays. It's super, super rare. And again, while we see it more commonly in the ER, it's only because... Unfortunately, these dogs aren't well vaccinated. So if you have one of those breeds that we just talked about, the Pitbull, the Rottweiler, Doberman, Labradors, rescue dogs, it is so important. You need to make sure your dog is vaccinated. And keep in mind, one vaccine does not protect your dog. Two vaccines don't protect your dog. Your dog has to get multiple vaccines in a vaccine series in order to mount an immune response. And that means that your dog has to go into a vet every three to four weeks in order to get that vaccine to rebooster them. It's not an attempt at us trying to make more money as veterinarians. There's actually a scientific reason why we're vaccinating that often. And those breeds that we talked about typically need to be vaccinated out to 16 to 20 weeks. Now, Dr. Pachtinger, what's the main treatment for canine parvovirus? Great question. And so unfortunately, similar to talking about the cholera or the flu, there's not really what I would call in quotes a cure or an antidote that one pill or one injection is going to make this better. And somebody may ask, well, I've heard about that Tamiflu antiviral for people that have the flu. Can't I use an antiviral if my dog gets this parvovirus? And the answer currently is unfortunately no. There are not really any great antivirals out there to help make this virus go away. And so ultimately, like when you get the flu, it's a lot of supportive and symptomatic care. As Dr. Lee was saying, one of the biggest concerns we have for these patients is dehydration. And so most of these patients, when they come into the hospital and they're sick, if they need to be hospitalized, they have a catheter that's often placed in their front leg in what's called the cephalic vein. That allows us to give intravenous fluids to help replace their dehydration. If they're continuing to have vomiting and diarrhea, we make sure that we're keeping up with their fluid requirements and of course, normal maintenance. And so even in a healthy person throughout the day, you know you're supposed to drink X ounces of water per day just for your normal maintenance and metabolism and homeostasis. So we have to put together a fluid therapy plan for these patients that covers their maintenance, what they're dehydrated because of the vomiting and diarrhea that they presented with, and also their losses, continued vomiting or continued diarrhea as we're treating them. And so fluid therapy is really one of the mainstays, one of the hallmarks of therapy remembering that many of them come in with signs of nausea, the drooling, the abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea. We put them on medications to help control nausea. So for example, if you went to the hospital, Zofran, Ondansetron is a very common drug that you would use. We can use that in pets, but maybe even more potent or other anti-nausea medications like Serenia, which has the generic name Meropidin. So medications for nausea and acids or proton pump inhibitors, so names that you may recognize from your pharmacy, famotidine, otherwise known as Pepsid-AC, or omeprazole, otherwise known as Prilosec-OTC. So many of us will consider antacids or proton pump inhibitors. 
other medications that we often put them on, antibiotics. And you may be asking yourself, why would I put my dog or why would my veterinarian put my dog on an antibiotic if this is a virus? Because we know antibiotics are not going to affect, not going to kill this virus. It's not an antiviral, it's an antibiotic. And if you remember what Dr. Lee said earlier in this segment, this virus affects rapidly dividing cells. And one common area that Dr. Lee mentioned was the bone marrow. And the bone marrow is what produces our white blood cells to help fight infection. So you may be saying to yourself, well, how does that relate? We have our bone marrow and our white blood cells being affected, and you have your cells that line your stomach and your intestines being affected. Well, let's start with the stomach and the intestines. We know that poop is gross. We know after we go to the bathroom, after we pick up our dog's poop, we should wash our hands because poop is covered in bacteria. It's full of bacteria. If your intestinal and stomach cells are very affected, what we worry about is we worry the bacteria that is normally in that intestinal tract can leak out to the rest of the body. And that has the big fancy medical term translocation. Well, if we're worried about that bacteria leaking out to the rest of the body, now remember again, our white blood cells and our bone marrow are affected. Now we don't have those white blood cells to help treat that infection as well as our body normally can, as well as that dog's body normally can. And so we put them on antibiotics with the hopes of preventing secondary bacterial infection, preventing spread of that bacteria, and that big fancy medical term of whole body infection, sepsis. And so when I put together a treatment sheet, it often includes fluids, medications for nausea, antibiotics, antacids or proton pump inhibitors, and potentially certain types of pain medication if they have significant belly pain from all of their stomach and intestinal upset. Great information. Thank you so much, Dr. Packninger. Now we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Dr. Packninger right after these messages. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite is nutrition. Pick up two bottles of Lico Chops. Get the third bottle free. New improved Lico Chops with omega-3, omega-6, vitamin E. And now, six extra direct-fed microbials. Even better for the digestive tract and immune system. Try Lico Chops. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. It's not just a sneeze. It could be the pathway to disease. Your dog is at risk for contracting dog flu. That's why it's important to vaccinate your dog for dog flu. Get your dog vaccinated today. Visit dogflu.com for more information. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Really honored to have Dr. Packninger on today, who's a fellow emergency critical care specialist who practices in the Levittown, Pennsylvania area. And being that both of us trained in the Philadelphia area, 
We ended up seeing a lot of canine parvovirus puppies and dogs affected. And that's why we're so passionate about educating people about this potentially life-threatening but totally preventable disease. And again, we'll talk about how to prevent it with vaccines towards the end of today's show. I did want to talk about some important things like you've already summarized how we're going to treat it. But I wanted to talk about how worried owners should be about spreading it. And this is honestly one of the reasons why I think it's so important that if you do dog rescue or you just adopted a new puppy, you have to make sure to get them to the vet right away. Most of the time, we start vaccinating puppies around five to six weeks of age. And if you purchase or you adopt a puppy at about eight to nine weeks of age, they may have only had one vaccine or one shot. And for this reason, they are not protected fully. In other words, their immune system is still really, really young and immature. They haven't had time to be able to protect themselves from these infectious diseases that live in the environment. And it's really important to realize that parvovirus can live in the environment for a really long time. Right now, I practice in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, and if it can survive in the snow in Minnesota, it can survive anywhere. So really important to realize that Unfortunately, if your dog was exposed to parvovirus, it takes about three to six days or up to a week or two for their body to actually incubate that virus in their body. They will start to shed that virus within that week and unfortunately will develop clinical signs typically within a week of exposure. What does that mean? If you just rescued a dog, they could have potentially gotten parvovirus, been exposed, but not show signs until a week, maybe 10 days after you adopt them. Why is this important? This is important because if you just brought a dog home, you ideally want to keep it isolated in your house or just on your property. In other words, I don't usually recommend taking them to a dog park until they've had at least two to three vaccines given. And this is really important just because parvovirus is so infectious. Now, you may not think your dog is exposed to dogs with parvovirus, but any feces, any kind of vomit, saliva, sharing water bowls, these can all result in contamination. So again, protect your dog, protect your puppy, and make sure they have at least two to three vaccines before you bring them outside. The other important thing I wanted to talk about in addition to treatment is there were two recent papers that just came out that talk about outpatient treatment of canine parvovirus. And we'll talk about this because a lot of animal rescue owners will often say to me, hey, can I try the Colorado protocol? What exactly does that mean? Well, earlier this year, there was a paper that came out of Colorado State University called Evaluation of an Outpatient Protocol in the Treatment of Canine Parvovirus Enteritis. I will say this was a really interesting study because it was one of the first studies to ever look at treating these guys outpatient. In general, everything that Dr. Pachtinger said is the ideal way we want to treat these guys because puppies are really, really ill. They're really dehydrated. They're oftentimes really shocky and they need 24-hour care when they're that sick. And that's because they often have a low blood pressure. They're often hypoglycemic where they have a low blood sugar and really important to save them. Otherwise, they can die from this. Now, in the study that was done, they basically looked at 20 dogs that were treated in the hospital and 20 dogs that mimicked an outpatient protocol. Dr. Pachtinger, what would you consider, quote, outpatient therapy? That's a great question. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these patients 
we get into the situation because it's an under-vaccinated, poorly vaccinated, and sometimes even a socioeconomic condition where uh, there's a financial challenge to get vaccinated. And so we end up with a very sick dog that now has a very expensive hospitalization. It's a real challenge because these cases have a fantastic prognosis with hospitalization. I would say my anecdotal experience is maybe in 15 years, I've had one patient not survive parvovirus, maybe two if I think really hard about it. So we have to have a very hard look at who is a candidate for outpatient therapy. For these patients that are outpatient, I'd like one that is not very sick, meaning they're not tremendously dehydrated. They have not been vomiting or having diarrhea for days. Because one of the biggest concerns we have, as Dr. Lee was talking about, is dehydration. And if we can't get the vomiting under control, regardless of how much they try to drink or regardless of how much fluid we give them, we worry the loss will exceed what they're able to take in and the dehydration will worsen. So I'd like it to be a patient that has fairly normal vital signs, normal heart rate, normal breathing, normal temperature. They have not been vomiting or having diarrhea for numerous days. They are not terribly lethargic. Overall, they are a very stable patient that can improve from getting fluids under their skin, subcutaneous fluids, as well as injections to go home to be with the family rather than 24-hour round-the-clock therapy. And so I'd want patients, for example, that have a rectal temperature that's greater than 99 degrees Fahrenheit. So remember, a normal dog's temperature is about 100 to 102.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Again, I'd want a normal heart rate, normal respiration, not significant abdominal pain, and I feel like have not been vomiting or having diarrhea for days where the, dihyd- where the dehydration is so great that just giving fluids out of the skin will not be sufficient enough. I totally agree. I do believe, based on the study, that you can consider outpatient therapy. And so what they did in this Venn study, it was authored by someone called Venn, what they did was they basically treated them initially with IV fluids, IV anti-vomiting medication, IV antibiotics. They normalized the blood sugar by giving them IV sugar. And once they were stable, they treated them with subcutaneous fluids. That means fluids under the skin. They then gave an injection of a long-acting antibiotic that lasts about a week. And they would oftentimes syringe feed these puppies a high-calorie, really palatable food. And what was interesting in this, quote, Colorado study was that 90% of the puppies that were hospitalized, in other words, in the in-hospital group survived versus 80% survived in the outpatient group. What does that mean? That means that I don't like giving up on these puppies. 80% of them will survive even with outpatient therapy. Now, don't get us wrong. What we're saying is the ideal treatment is IV fluids. And again, it's more comfortable for the puppy. But if there's financial limitations, talk to your veterinarian about this Colorado protocol to potentially work with your veterinarian on stabilizing them first with hospitalization. And then once they're more stable, like Dr. Packninger said, normal heart rate, not vomiting anymore, their blood sugar is normal, then we can consider treating them on an outpatient basis. And that means we teach the owner how to give fluids under the skin at home. We teach the owner how to syringe your puppy food safely so they don't develop any complications like pneumonia. Now, it is important to realize that a second study just came out also looking at outpatient therapy, and they found a survival of about 75% with outpatient therapy. What does this mean? It still means that approximately one out of every four puppies dies of canine parvovirus despite treatment. So really important that you talk to your veterinarian about what your options are. And again, that's what we call the Colorado protocol. 
The important thing to realize is that with vaccine, kin and parvovirus is completely preventable, but you have to make sure your pet is appropriately vaccinated. So Dr. Pachtinger, do you mind just talking a little bit about when we vaccinate, how often, when we should stop vaccinating, and are there any risks with the vaccine? Absolutely. And I think one of the first things I'll mention is there is an important and appropriate time to start vaccinating. And that's usually between approximately six to eight weeks of age. Many veterinarians will start closer to the eight week of age. And the reason is you would say, well, why can't I start them earlier? I just got them from the breeder. Why can't the breeder potentially or the shelter potentially start vaccinating them at two or four weeks of age? And the reason is when they're born, they actually have some antibody in their system from the mom. And those maternal antibodies will actually prevent a vaccine from doing its job and helping the body build normal antibodies. So if you have a lot of maternal antibody on board, that can actually negate the value of the vaccine. So puppies that are vaccinated at four or five weeks of age, I would personally consider that as an ineffective vaccine and restart the cycle closer to seven, maybe eight weeks of age. So we want those maternal antibodies to go down and therefore the vaccine able to work to stimulate the body to make those new and protective antibodies. So we'll start them at approximately eight weeks of age. As Dr. Lee was saying, often they'll come in every three to four weeks thereafter. So approximately eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16, and potentially 20 weeks, depending on the vaccine. And then they will come in at one year, and then likely every three years thereafter to booster that vaccine. Once those antibodies are in the system, they don't need vaccines every four weeks, for example. That puppy series 8, 12, 16, and potentially 20 weeks, followed up by a booster at one year, and then likely every three years thereafter. And it's very important to recognize, as Dr. Lee was saying, that just getting the vaccine at eight weeks of age does not make your puppy protected and therefore able to go to the groomer or go to the dog park. And I know this time of year, it's great. It's spring. It's starting to get warm out. Many families are getting puppies because now we're able to better train them and be outside. But this is not the time to socialize them at the generic dog park where all dogs are. While your dog may be getting vaccinated, getting protected, you can't guarantee the vaccine status of all the dogs that are there or were there. And as Dr. Lee was saying, this virus is a fairly hardy virus that can live in the ground, the grass, the soil for a significant period of time. And knowing the vaccine is often transmitted by the fecal oral route, your puppy eating something off the ground, your puppy around another dog's rear end, for example, it's a very easily and transmissible virus. And so we want to make sure they are really well vaccinated before we take them over to the dog parks, the kennels, the groomers. If you do know your family member has a well vaccinated dog, the risk is probably less, but you don't know what really is in their backyard. And so you still have to be a little bit careful, a little bit cautious, I know it's frustrating because it's spring, it's getting to be warm, and we all want to be out there walking our puppy around the neighborhood and the yard, but we just have to make sure they're safe to get that first. Great information. I think it's so important to realize and to talk to a veterinarian that, again, one or two vaccines is not preventative. It's getting that whole puppy series. I will say there's a recent study that's about to be published by veterinary behaviorists that show that people who take their puppies to puppy obedience are at very low risk. And that's because most owners who take their dogs to puppy obedience, which is something you should always do, 
usually vaccinate their dogs. So don't worry, the risk of going to a professional dog trainer or going to doggy puppy obedience classes is pretty minimal, but we still want your puppy to have at least two to three vaccines. That said, I still agree with Dr. Pachtinger. I probably wouldn't take them to a big city park. Puppy dog class is really important because it helps socialize your puppy. And we want to do this while they're still young, less than 12 weeks of age. It's really important for their development, but so important that you talk to your veterinarian. The good thing is canine parvovirus is actually relatively easy to kill with appropriate disinfectants. So things like a really dilute bleach solution will kill canine parvovirus, but unfortunately, you can't bleach your whole house and you can't bleach your yard. So I've had the really sad stories where people have brought their puppies into the ER vet to see me. Their dog gets euthanized because of canine parvovirus. They can't afford to treat them. They get another puppy a couple of weeks later and that puppy also gets parvovirus because it's still in the environment. So when in doubt, please talk to your veterinarian about appropriate prevention. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you, Dr. Pachtinger, so much for joining us today. We really appreciated all your wisdom on this topic because I know you see a lot of canine parvovirus in your area. Thanks for having me. You can find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook at Dr. Justine Lee, or email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. Make sure you also check out our Pet Life Radio ER Vet podcast on iTunes, and that way you can subscribe and get our podcast straight to your smartphone. With that, we're out of time, and we'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Pachtinger and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.